right. Sorry, I think that was my fault. Uh, my bad. Um, with the, the noise. Um, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good morning, good morning. Hey, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Paul. I serve as the teaching pastor here at LifePoint Church. So good uh, to worship with you, uh, to sing to Jesus with you. I love what Brad uh, just closed his prayer with, that uh, sometimes we allow our situation uh, to impact or influence our worship, but really the other thing should be true. Our worship should really be what impacts uh, and drives our situation. That's so beautifully said. Um, thankful to see you. If you're a guest this morning, welcome to you. So thankful that you're here. Members, regular attenders, uh, welcome back. We are in week two of a series uh, going through the book of Revelation. It's a 10-week series, and so uh, the book of Revelation has 22 chapters, and so we're not going to cover everything, but we're going to, to cover what we can. A little bit of review for us in case you missed last week. And so this book of Revelation uh, has a, can have a bit of an intimidating factor about it because um, there, there's a lot of different opinions. Um, but we tried to, to simplify things last week and to say, look, the point of the book of, of Revelation is, is ultimately Jesus. And the big idea that we have in this series is that the Revelation is not necessarily about a future calendar but the revelation is about present hope. Right? That's the big idea of this series. It's not about a, necessarily a future calendar. While the Bible and the book of Revelation does talk about what happens in the future, it also very much speaks to our present moment and what faithfulness looks like in our present moment. Uh, the book is, is written by the Apostle John who uh, was with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And John is on this uh, prison island, a little bit like Alcatraz. And he's, it's, a, it's a Sunday, and he's worshiping Jesus. And all of a sudden, this, this, his eyes are open to see these spiritual realities, and Jesus reveals these things to him. And that's an important point. Uh, the word revelation, uh, in, in its original form, means apocalypsis. And typically, when we think about the word apocalypsis, what we think about is like zombies and nuclear bombs and fire and stuff, okay? And, and that's, that's fair. However, the word apocalypsis, it actually means the revealing of or the uncovering of. And so then when we put on this lens to say, okay, apocalypsis or the revelation means the revealing of, we ask of what or of whom? And we get that answer in the first five words of the book of Revelation in chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so church, this book is about Jesus. Jesus is the central point, and that's really, really good. Now, the, the vision um, from John begins with this incredible picture of Jesus in verses 14 through 16. Again, just by way of review, I want to read this for us because this is like Jesus present tense. Like, this is not meek and mild Jesus. This is Jesus' glorified, powerful, magnificent Jesus. Verses 14 through 16, chapter 1, it says, The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We also saw that Jesus stands in the midst of seven lampstands, which are representative of the church. The number seven throughout the book of Revelation, there's going to be the number four, the number seven. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of different numbers, but the number seven really represents spiritual completeness and totality. 
And so the picture we get here is of Jesus standing in the midst of the church then and today and Jesus holding the church in his hand. And how do those things happen simultaneously? I don't know. He's glorified Jesus, so we're just going to roll with it, okay? But this is the point. If your world is falling apart, Jesus has you in his hand, right? If everything around you seems like chaos, Jesus is in your midst, And we need to cling to that. And as we read this book, we need to see Jesus is in our midst. He holds us in his hands. He is in control. And that's a really good thing. And so I think we need to maybe loosen the control on our lives and give some of that control, give all of that control to Jesus because he's the only one who is able. And so that's the setup here that we have for this book. Now, it also said there is a sharp, two-edged sword coming from Jesus' mouth, which is a terrifying picture. Right? When John first sees this, he falls down at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. And again, the, the picture we get here is, is of this sword pointing toward the church. And it's really a, a representation of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that says the word of God is living active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and it pierces us. And so what Jesus is going to be doing here is addressing the church in these first two, chapters two and three, to say, hey, good job in some areas, and there's some real issues that we got to correct in some areas. That's what's happening in chapters two and three. And so with that being said, uh, last week we covered the, ch- the, um, the church at Ephesus. He's writing to these seven churches, so it's literal in a sense, but again, it's universal in a sense. We can hold some of these things a little bit loosely, but we need to understand this applies to us as well. Remember to the church at Ephesus, they, they held really strong in their doctrine. They were, they were great, um, steadfast, and this is the truth. The problem with that, though, is that they lost some love. And Jesus doesn't exactly explain what love they lost. It could be a love for him. It could be a love for others within the church. It could be a loss of love for those outside the church. The point is any loss of love ultimately stems from a loss of love of Christ. And so that's an issue. And he addresses it. And he says, repent. Like repent or else I'm going to remove your lampstand, which essentially means if you don't repent, I'm no longer going to allow you to be a light to the world. Serious. It's very serious. He moves on, and and we don't have time to cover all of these. Um, I I wish we did. So I'm going to just give you just a little bit of context uh, for the rest of of the other five churches, and then we're going to cover the seventh church primarily today in the church of Laodicea. But he goes on from there. He he addresses the church at Smyrna. He says to them, this is the only church that he gives just an all-out congratulations. Uh, Philadelphia, I guess, to an extent as well. This is a, God, you're doing great, guys. This church at Samaria, they think they're very poor. Materialistically, they are. But Jesus says, yes, you're, you're materialistically poor, but actually you're rich. You're rich in spiritual things. And that needs to be, obviously, something that we pay attention to as well. We live in an extraordinary, affluent nation, right? Compared to the rest of the world, my goodness, the things that we have. He says, no, you... You're doing great. Then he goes on to the church at Pergamum. The, this church, his, his commendation, his good job is they've stood strong, right? They, they've stood strong against persecution. They've held on to the faith. However, they're, they're tolerating some bad theology. 
Jesus doesn't like that. So he says, address that. And he, again, some stern warnings. Then he goes to the church at uh, Thyatira. He says, good work on, on, again, remaining steadfast in who I am. Again, I'm paraphrasing here. Read this yourself. Study it yourself. That would be great. But the problem with this church is that they're tolerating sexual immorality. That's bad. Don't do that. So he addresses that. He then goes on to the church as we flip to chapter 3, the church at Sardis. And he says this in, in, um, in verse, I believe it is 2. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Excuse me, that was the second half of verse 1. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's a terrifying thing. Everybody thinks you're doing great. You think you're doing great. You're like, let's go. But Jesus says, no, you're actually dead. He says, wake up. I thought about going into that one today, but we're not going to. Then he goes to the church at Philadelphia. And again, much, much a very good, good job. Keep up the good work. Remain steadfast in the faith. Keep going. And finally, we get to the church at Laodicea, which is the church that we'll primarily spend our time in today. So I'm going to read verses 14 through 22. Um, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to sort of work our way through these verses. And, and, and before that, ask the Lord to help us. So I'm going to I'm going to read, we'll ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll go from there. Verse 14, I'm going to read it, everything in its entirety so we have the context. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we hear your word. Jesus, you are the word and we hear what you say to us. Holy Spirit, we need your help this morning as we are challenged and confronted. Would you pierce us? Would you discipline us this morning? Would you encourage us this morning? Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in our midst today. We ask this in Christ's name. So again, we have the context pretty intense, and this entire setup sort of reminded me of a story I actually told it maybe four or five years ago at the Delaware campus, so if this is a, 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 re, um, a second telling, please forgive me, but it was too important in my mind to not share. Uh, when our oldest son, Theo, was about 18 months old, um, he's now five, uh, he was running around, as little ones do, our island. So we had this little tiny apartment, and he was just cruising around. He was on his, like, you know, thousandth, thousandth lap. Um, I wanted to put, you know, like a fitness watch on him and say, like, buddy, you just ran, like, a four-minute mile. Anyway, so he's cruising around cruising around for, for forever. And he, he like slipped though at one point and his foot stuck and his leg kept moving. 
um, not good. And so he cries immediately, of course. And so, you know, Maddie and I, we pick him up, we hold him, we get him to eventually stop crying. We're like, okay, are you okay, buddy? And, you know, he's, he's still a little worried, not sure. And so we, we set him down, and immediately he does this. Will not put any weight on his leg. And so we're like, well, that's not great. Um, it was evening at the time, so we're like, well, hey, you know what, maybe we sleep on it. Call me a bad parent, that's fine. So let's sleep on it, okay? Um, not on it, but maybe, you know, on your other side. Um, so we said, run to your room. Just kidding. We carried him to his room, and I uh, put him down, you know, and it's like, Lord, please, I don't know. This didn't look great. Wakes up the next morning, set him down, same thing. Will not put any weight on his leg. But he's not crying. He's not losing his mind. It's like, okay, maybe he's okay, but it's weird that he will not put any weight on his leg. It's as if little kids know when they're actually hurt. I feel like um, we could learn from that, maybe. I don't know. Um, and so we, we go to Nationwide Children's Hospital, and he is terrified of, of hospitals and doctors. Like, like screaming bloody murder terrified. And so we're like, this will be fun. And so we get to the hospital, and at the time, Maddie was pregnant uh, with our second son, Liam. And so, uh, of course, we get there, and the doctor uh, orders some x-rays. Well, because Maddie is pregnant, she can't be the one to go into the x-ray room. And, and Theo, he really wanted Maddie to be the one to go with him. And so he is clawing, mommy, you know, screaming. I am, I am removing him from his mother, you know, like full-on as much strength as I had because children are freakishly strong. They have like, I mean, the, like the talons they've got on there, right? And so he's holding on with everything he has. I have to rip him away. We walk down the hallway toward the x-ray room. He is still screaming, mommy, 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 as I'm crying and holding him walking down the hall. Then we get to the x-ray room and this poor nurse who has no idea what's coming. Nurses, by the way, y'all crush it. I feel like you do like 98% of the work and the doctors come in at the last second. Anyway, if you're a doctor here, oh, so sorry, that was probably offensive. <laughs> anyway, so then poor nurse, she, she grabs him and she's like, okay, dad, I got this. And I'm like, oh, are you sure? And so she tries to lay him down on the x-ray table and this poor woman does not stand a chance. I mean, he is spinning, twisting, punching, kicking, I mean, losing his mind. And she finally looks at me and she says, dad, you have, we have to get an x-ray. You have to hold him down. Okay. Hey, buddy. It's okay. We just, just got to get this x-ray because you're hurt. We got to know what's going on. Screaming. No, daddy. No, daddy. No, daddy. No, daddy. No, daddy. No, daddy. As I'm shoving my forearm into his chest, down onto the table, holding his arms, holding his legs as he's screaming, no, daddy, no, daddy, no, daddy, no, screaming at the top of his lungs, and I'm crying, like, did you get the picture? You know, like, I mean, it's just horrible as he is losing it. Finally, they get the picture, and I just think it's okay. It's okay. Pick him up and hold him. It's traumatic for me, I tell you that. We go back, it turned out he had fractured his, his leg, so we got a picture of little Theo uh, here at 18 months old with a, with a full leg cast at 18 months. That's fun. And so here's the thing. In order for him to heal, I had to hold him down. And it was painful for him. And he didn't like it. I didn't like it. But in order for him to heal and, and receive the treatment that he needed to receive, that was the most loving thing that I could do in that moment was to pin him on this x-ray table. Church, this, this direction 
to the church at Laodicea. It's a bit like Jesus holding us down on the x-ray table as we scream, no, 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 no. And he's saying, you need to understand what is wrong. It's painful. It hurts. My sword is piercing you. But you must understand for the sake of your soul. So what's the problem with the church at Laodicea? What's their problem? The first half of verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The city of Laodicea, they had these sheep in the region that were, were black sheep. They had very rich black wool. And the merchants um, were like, great, this is a unique product. And so they made this, these luxurious black garments that you could really only get at Laodicea. It was a booming industry. Not only that, there was, um, Laodicea was really a, um, a, a center for medicine. And so they had different uh, medicines that they manufactured in Laodicea, one of them being an eye salve, uh, which helped people see and helped relieve eye pain. Very, very wealthy. Actually so wealthy that in AD 61, this city, along with many other cities in Rome, were leveled by a massive earthquake. Laodicea was so wealthy that they said, government, we actually don't need your money. We've got this. They turned down government funds. Who does that, right? And so they said, no, we don't need your money. Uh, We're actually going to rebuild the city ourselves. And they did. That's how prominent these people were. And what happened, though, is that their material wealth blinded them to their spiritual death. The, The comfort of what their wealth could buy them blinded them to any need that they had spiritually. And that's a real danger. There's something about being able to provide for our every need that limits the capacity and the extent to which we go to God for help, right? If I'm good, why do I need God? And that's almost what they were saying. And so that's their perception of themselves, but this is Jesus' perception of them. And We'll read verse 17 in its entirety. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are two wildly different assessments of the same situation. Laodicea says, we're good. Jesus says, you are wretched. It's a really big difference. In Laodicea, material wealth had cultivated spiritual self-sufficiency. Material wealth had cultivated spiritual self-sufficiency. Now, what did this then look like? Okay, and again, I know we've read this. We can go through it, but what did, what's the issue here? Verses 15 and 16. Okay, it says this. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. You're neither cold nor hot, excuse me. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What's fascinating is this would have hit real close to home for the church at Laodicea. About six miles north, there there were a a mountainous range, the Colossae Mountains, and it was snowy and cold, and the water from those mountains would travel down an aqueduct, and we actually have a picture of an actual Laodicean aqueduct, which is amazing, like this carried water to this actual city. This is just cool, okay? So it would carry this cold water down to Laodicea. And interestingly, 
On the other end of the spectrum, there were these hot springs about six miles in the other direction that were boiling, and they would also be carried down these aqueducts to get to Laodicea. And what would happen is they would mix, and it would be like sort of warm, but not hot. Have you ever had a cup of coffee that's been sitting out a little bit too long, and you take a drink, and you're like, oh, not very good. Happens to me every day. So I just boil or you know make a new pot. Anyway, so... That's, what, that's what's happening here. And they're, they're, they realize and they know, oh, wait, what Jesus is saying, this water that we actually have in our city that we don't like, Jesus is saying that's us. And what Jesus is then saying is that it disgusts me so much that I want to spit it out of my mouth. He wants to throw up. He wants to vomit this church out of his mouth. And he says, I haven't done it yet, but you are so lukewarm to me that I will unless you repent. He said, I'd actually rather you be cold, which sounds fascinating. There's obviously the spiritually hot, and we know that's good, like on fire for the Lord. But for Jesus to say, I'd rather you be spiritually cold is essentially Jesus saying, I'd rather you not identify as a believer. Because if you didn't identify as a believer, you would go through hard things and you would see you need salvation. The issue for you, church at Laodicea, is you have claimed me You claim to know me, and yet I make no difference in your life. And that is disgusting to me, so much so that it makes me sick, and I want to throw you up. Holding us down on the x-ray table. I think the question that is always helpful to ask is why? Why does this make Jesus so sick? Why does Jesus detest this so much? And I think to answer that question, why, we first need to answer the question, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Really, we we say this word Christian all of the time, and I think we take it for granted. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Great. Awesome. It's good. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be Christian? And so to answer this, and I think then it helps us answer why this disgusts Jesus so much. Uh, we're going to go back to the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, and um, what the Apostle Paul here says in verses 14 through uh, 15. He says this, for the love of Christ, let me make sure I'm on the right verse. Yep, okay, cool. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay? For the love of Christ controls us. There's this concept of like control is this like there's this authority. There's this I'm not in control of my life dynamic to this. And why does he get to this conclusion that the love of Christ controls us? Well, again, because of, of what he says here. So we have, he's made this conclusion, and I should have stayed on the text. For the love of, tr- of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What he means here, what he's saying here is that Jesus died for you, and if you are placing your faith in Jesus, what that means is that your old self, the old you, has also died. It, it's over, like dead. Then when Jesus walked out of the grave and was resurrected from the dead, he is now alive, 
And so then when we have faith in him, we too are alive, not because we did it ourselves, but because Jesus walked out of the grave, we walk out of the spiritual grave now. And so for then us to say, no, I'm going to keep living in old dead me, but claim new living Christ, those two things don't compute. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Like, how can you claim Christ and keep living like you want to live and being, having two feet sort of in, in, in both worlds. And it just doesn't add up. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And, and that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. The point is this. If we claim to be Christians, are we living for ourselves or are we living for Christ? If we claim to say, no, I understand that Jesus saved me from the penalty of my sin, from death, from all that my sin, I I deserve from my sin, and we're saying, no, I am a Christian, are are we still living there? Are we saying, Jesus, you have a better plan for my life? Jesus, you have better purposes for me? Jesus, you have a new life for me to live? I need to flee from all of the things that I was pursuing that you, you saw as serious enough to die for, and I need to start living for the new life that you have given me. And I think it makes sense why Jesus would be disgusted if we're living in both worlds. You see, lukewarm Christianity claims dependency but lives autonomously. That's the issue with lukewarm Christianity. Claims to be dependent on Christ and yet lives in personal autonomy. So I think that's reason one why this makes Jesus sick. Second reason. Go to the book of Acts, if you will. The book of Acts in chapter one. At this point, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's revealed himself alive to his disciples, and as he's about to ascend into heaven, he says this, beginning in verse 6. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him, the disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, which speaks to the big idea of this entire series, by the way. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so when we ask this question, what is it to be Christian? And as we ask this question, why does this make Jesus want to vomit if we are lukewarm? Our purpose as Christians, what did Jesus say? Go and be my witnesses. And sometimes, again, when we're so familiar with Christian words, They get deluded, and we don't really understand what Jesus is actually saying. So what is it to be a witness of Jesus? You see, what what Jesus was saying is, I want you to go to everybody you know in Judea, where you live, and I want you to tell them what it is you have experienced and what it is you have seen. You see, a witness has a firsthand personal account of something that then they go share with other people. Okay, That's the function of a witness. And think about the the initial group that Jesus told, go and be my witnesses. Think about all of the firsthand account things that they could share about who Jesus is. Think about James and John, for example, when Jesus walked by and said, follow me. They left their boat, they left Zebedee, and they're like, okay. And he was faithful. That was a ridiculous step of faith. I'm going to follow him. 
step of faith, but they witnessed Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle because they took an obedient step of faith. Think about Peter. Many examples for Peter. We, we see him walking on water for a little bit until he freaks out. That's a step of faith. And then he could say, no, I, I witnessed Jesus allow me to walk on water. And the point of him doing that was to show that he has all authority, right? that he is God in the flesh, that he can even control the sea. He took that ridiculous step of faith, which opened his eyes to see the power of Jesus that he could then share with other people. Imagine when Jesus said, I want you to go into these other, other towns and other villages, go out two by two, and I want you to share the gospel and teach about the kingdom of God. Crazy step of faith, okay? I'm going, this is scary, I don't know what to say, but then God shows up and he gives you the words to say and you witness Jesus doing something in you it far surpasses anything you could ever hope, dream, or imagine. You see, when we take radical steps of faith, we witness God's power and Jesus' authority and his provision in our lives that then allows us to go witness to other people about what Jesus has done, which speaks to the very function of why we were created for his glory. Lukewarm Christianity doesn't witness because it doesn't witness very much explain what I mean by that. Lukewarm Christianity doesn't tell people about Jesus because in lukewarm Christianity, we don't witness Jesus doing very much in our lives because we take very few steps that require bold faith. Think about it. How can you go witness and tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done if you're just so caught up in, I'm pretty good, I don't really need a lot. I'm not really asking Jesus for much. When I feel like I'm supposed to do something, I don't know if I really need to, so I'm just going to not. If we're not taking bold steps in faith that make us uncomfortable, we're not going to witness Jesus doing extraordinary things in our lives, and we're not going to tell people about it. That's why Jesus says, you make me sick. <laughs> and he holds us down onto the x-ray table to say, is this your heart? Is this my heart? And as much as he challenges us and pierces us with his word, he is so good to love us and to encourage us. He says this in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and Come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is Jesus' encouragement? Repent. I want you to repent of having half of yourself here and your old self and half yeah, I claim to be a Christian. I want you to repent of not taking bold steps in faith so you don't see me working in your life, so then you don't share and witness about what I have done. I want you to repent, and when you do that, I promise there will be blessing for you. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I mean, come on. 
That's what Jesus is inviting us into. And my question for us this morning, my question for myself this morning, am I too apathetic? Am I too comfortable? Am I too go with the flow? And am I going to miss what Jesus has. And do you notice where Jesus is in this story? He says, I stand at the door and I knock. And so often we use this verse from an evangelistic standpoint. We use it in gospel presentations and we say, look, Jesus is standing outside and he's knocking and he wants you to open up the door to, to, to you and, and he wants to change your life. And that can certainly be true. But here's the thing. Jesus is knocking on the door of the church. And remember what we said at the beginning, Jesus is supposed to be standing in the middle of the church. And so how can he be knocking on the door on the outside if he's standing in the middle? What that says is they've, they're so self-sufficient that they put Jesus outside. So independent that they put Jesus outside. So lacking in bold steps of faith, courageous faith that they said, Jesus, we really don't need you. And Jesus is standing on the door and saying, hey guys, hello, you're the church. Would you let me come in? Would you let me hold you in my hand so I'm in control? Would you let me be in your midst so you can see my glory? Would you let me do the things that only I can do that are ultimately good for you? And so church this morning, what I want to lead us into is a time of repentance and bold steps of faith. That's what I want for us this morning. So I want, I want you to, we can Put the lights to the worship setting, please. We're going to make it a little bit darker because, you know, I, I just want to eliminate any possible, like, I'm, I just, I want us to take bold steps of faith. So I want you to bow your heads. Some of us here need to take that first step of faith, and I'm going to use that Jesus is standing and knocking for you to say, hey, I want to, I want to do something in your life. I want to do something miraculous. I want to save you. I want to give you a new life. And he's standing and knocking. And some of us, we need we need that. Some of us here this morning, we need to take bold steps in faith. Let me give you an example. Some of us have been following Jesus for a, for a, for a while or for a long time, and, and we see in the scriptures, Jesus says, go, therefore, make all disciples and, and, and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all that I have commanded you. And, and we haven't taken that baptism step. Because, you know, there's this fear, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward. Maybe taking a step of public faith allows Jesus to come into your life and say, no, I'm in control. And so I'm speaking to us here this morning who need to take that step. It's not going to be today, but I want you to identify that's a next step that I need to take. I want to own that. Maybe for some of us, we're, we're pursuing a sin that we know is a sin and we can't put it to death. I want you to commit this morning to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you boldly, authentically, powerfully to free me from this sin that has held me captive. I want to commit to it. I want to cling to it. I want to, I want to be zealous. That's the word that Jesus used. I want to be zealous for fleeing from sin. And for other of us, I want to be zealous in sharing the gospel and witnessing what Jesus has done. So again, heads are bowed. If you know that you need to take a step this morning, I want you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you out by name. Again, room's dark, heads are down. If you know what your step is, I want you to raise your hand. Don't do it ashamedly. Raise it. 
not raising it for me. You're raising it for God to say, God, this is me. Here I am. I know that I need to take a step. I'm trusting you to move in me. I want you to take that step. And you're committing to that this morning before Jesus to take that step. You can put your hands down. God, I want to praise you for the steps that need to be taken. God, I want to ask by the power of your spirit that you would give follow through to those steps, that conversations would be had, that this morning before we leave, that people would be prayed for. They would step out in faith and say, here it is, which you pray for me. God, save this morning, sanctify this morning, make us more like you. We love you, we trust you, we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.